Hello and welcome to Global Cosmetics News monthly podcast series In Conversation With. Today, with the help of my panel, we will review the external factors that have challenged the cosmetics industry throughout 2020 and the lessons, if any, that have been learned along the way. But first, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest. Good afternoon to Amajit Sahota, founder and president at Ecover Intelligence, joining us from London. Good evening to Nicole Fall, CEO of Asian Consumer Intelligence, joining us from Singapore. And good morning to Mallory Huron, beauty editor at Fashion Snoops, who is in New York. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Let's start at the beginning of the year in January with Trump's tariffs. Mallory, how have they affected the industry in the US? And what, if any, have lessons been learned? So I think with U.S.-based brands relying on ingredients sourced from China to manufacture goods and with consumers increasingly drawn to personal care and beauty goods from China, the overarching lesson here is that the uncertainty of the global supply chain is still the major theme of 2020. I mean, we've heard the word uncertain and the term uncertain times countless, you know, countless times this year. And I think the concept of unpredictability, be it in terms of health crises or international trade, has fueled a reevaluation of global supply chain stability. I think we're going to continue to see this debate between free trade and supporting domestic brands. But that said, tariffs don't necessarily help U.S. businesses succeed. Uh, And for the U.S. consumer, the tariffs, I think, served as a stark reminder of how dependent upon and interconnected we are on goods from China. And Nicole, how has that affected Asia? So if we started the year with Trump tariffs, we end the year with RECEP, which is a really, you know, positive um, piece of news, really, for global trade, you know, as the world had moved away from this, you know, multilateralism to more of a, you know, first, you know, America first, uh, Brexit and so on. You know, we have RECEP, which is effectively um, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And there's 15 countries in the, you know, Asian region, which are now signed up and allowing more free trade. And, um, and from, you know, every industry should, you know, be impacted um, positively. And, you know, so it, it's gone from, it's gone almost full circle, really, where, you know, people, you know, industries were concerned with what's happening to, you know, a ray of light. And consequently, you know, markets have gone up um, and there's just a positivity in the air. And particularly this year um, where we see economies, you know, uh, you know, downgraded and, and everything just in such dire straits, um, you know, there is, you know, hope on the horizon. And Amadit, for Europe... Well, in Europe, the major issue about the tariffs was when in July, um, Donald Trump announced there's going to be a 25% uh, tariffs for French products, which were wine, cheese, as well as cosmetics. And um, he did say they were going to be implemented in 180 days, which means they could be reversed by the new administration. So we haven't seen the big trade wars that you know, that US has seen with China and other parts of the world. But what we are seeing, what we, what we did see was a lot of talk about introducing these tariffs. So what remains to be seen is if those tariffs get introduced, because that's going to impact the French cosmetics industry. 
But a bigger question is uh, Brexit, uh, because um, the US really wants to enter a trade deal with the UK, and that's going to affect the trade of cosmetics. And um, I think everyone here is wondering how that trade agreement is going to pan out and how it's going to affect raw materials for cosmetics as well as finished products. So I think 2021 is going to be a very big year for the UK uh, in terms of trade deals, probably more so than the US. Hmm. March saw the global virus spread, lockdown nations and put pressure on the industry supply chain. Amajit, what have been the learnings from the industry's response? Uh, it's, it's quite a big question, to be honest. Um, if you look at it from, in terms of raw materials, um, whether it's ingredients or packaging, uh, one of the key lessons or one of the key things that we've seen is that um, globalization isn't, pro isn't always the best way forward, whether you're sourcing ingredients or whether you're buying your packaging. Um, more and more companies, they're realizing that sometimes it's better to have a diversified source base for your ingredients and for your packaging and materials, etc. Because what the pandemic has shown that is shown that um, it's shown the vulnerabilities in supply chains. So, you know, just to give an example, uh, plastics, a lot of companies in Europe were relying on China for their plastic packaging. And uh, luckily, there wasn't a shortage, but there was disruption in February and March. But then uh, supply networks continued, you know, in the coming months. But where we saw more shocks was more natural raw materials, things like essential oils, natural extracts, which were coming from Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Um, the time for transportation was much longer. There was greater quarantine procedures. And uh, so there was quite a lot of disruption in terms of flow of ingredients and materials coming into Europe uh, directly as a result of the pandemic. And Nicole, um, what have been the learnings in Asia? Well, as we uh, near the end of this, you know, super weird year, um, what we really see in this part of the world is obviously, you know, economies are recovering. Um, you know, people are living in this sort of, uh, you know, uh, new normal or, or um, after Corona, after coronavirus world, sorry, pandemic world, and um, um, you know, effectively, there just seems to be more of an acceptance of the way things are. And in terms of supply chains and issues, a lot of these have been ironed out. I mean, you know, initially there were, you know, the, the panic that we saw in every um, supermarket and store across the world, but now, you know. <laughs> There's just none of that going on. And obviously the big sales in the region recently, you know, 11-11 and, and even, you know, Black Friday, um, people are just almost back to how they were, but walking around with face masks and, and, you know, and just kind of getting on with things. So I think in this part of the world, there is a sense of, okay, this is what's happened. Let's accept it. Let's just get on and try and transform, you know, business as usual into business as, you know, what we can do with it and how do we move forward. So it, it's it's a very different dynamic from what we're seeing in um, Europe and the US. And as I said earlier with Recep, you know, there's just a renewed optimism with trade in the region and, you know, in the uh, stock markets have, you know, kind of mini bounces um, to reflect that optimistic attitude. And Mallory, is there optimism now in the US? 
Um, unfortunately, I don't think there is much optimism at the moment. We're not in too much of a better space with the coronavirus pandemic than we were in the spring. Um, and But in terms of lessons learned, I think it's interesting to examine it from a brand and consumer standpoint in terms of brand communication and transparency. One thing that stands out in terms of industry impact is this has really magnified the need for honest, authentic brand communication. The U.S. consumer is really looking to brands to reassure them, to inform them, to clear confusion, both in terms of pandemic and in their daily lifestyles. And I think this has really shown the immense value of social media interaction. You know, of course, before this pandemic, brands knew very well its value, but it really became a lifeline, especially in times of lockdown and quarantine. I think this uh, all has also shown how quickly consumer priorities have sh have shifted and how they can shift, um, you know, in terms of the antibacterial, antiviral, antimicrobial boom. And also another lesson I believe is that the central issue of affordability is going to be having a major impact on beauty and personal care going forward. Of course, the economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic is just beginning, and brands really need to reassess right now how to figure out how to appeal to consumers who will be short on disposable income for self-care. By May, the digital revolution became the new battleground for businesses. Nicole, what have been the most important lessons learned over the last 12 months? What we really see in this part of the world is, you know, I mean, it, it, Asia have become the epicenter of, um, you know, digital acceleration anyway. You know, everything from um, less contact, more convenience, you know, the personal personalization kind of going very hyper-technical, um, as well as, you know, everything from the live commerce and, and, uh, and the huge, you know, shopping festivals that are happening. So it was all happening here anyway. But, you know, what we just saw was an acceleration of these trends. So if they were just sort of, you know, growing or emergent in the past, they've just been shifted rapidly to the mainstream. So what we really see is, you know, if, uh, if Sephora's stores used to be kind of full of shoppers uh, milling about trying things on, well, you know, all that's happened now really is those shops, yeah, are standing more empty, but people are online, they're using the digital tools available to them and shopping that way and just interacting with the brands with uh you know with what's at their disposal and in this part of the world you know convenience has always been king and so you know the inconveniences that this pandemic has thrown up have just been overcome with technology and in this part of the world again technology is seen as a savior and it's not seen as something to be feared or you know to be worried about and of course you know there are certain elements of, you know, where people will lose their jobs and people have lost their jobs. But generally speaking, the embrace of technology in this part of the world is, is just something that's viewed as if it makes my life easier, if it makes my life safer, then I will embrace it. And Amajid in Europe? Well, it's been a very interesting year. Uh, we have seen a big, big increase in online sales of beauty products. And um, a lot of consumers are now going online, have, have gone online that they would not normally uh, otherwise do. Uh, we're seeing a lot of demographics from, say, age 45 onwards, even the people from 65 age onwards, which are buying online for the first time. And um, I think also it's, it's very interesting because here in Europe, we're in a second lockdown. Most countries in Europe are in a second lockdown. So department stores, beauty retailers, bars and salons have all been closed for the last one month. And 
countries like the UK, we saw three-month lockdown uh, from March all the way until end of June, July. And that's had a very detrimental effect on physical retail, especially, you know, the stores I mentioned, but also the professional sector. So it's been a very interesting year because the, the physical retail sales have seen a very big drop. More and more consumers have gone online. But the big question is what's going to happen post-COVID? A lot of these consumers who are now buying online, will they go back to physical stores? Will we see more of an increase in online sales? Or will we see more hybrid sales where consumers will start going to physical retailers more to test and sample, but they'll keep buying the same products through online? So it's a very interesting time. And uh, we're waiting to see what happens post-COVID. And Mallory in the US? I think the lesson learned for the US market is that we need to play catch up big time in terms of digital acceleration. Seeing how China responded to the lockdowns with these amazing live streaming shopping shows and incredible VR, AR shopping experiences just showed how far behind many US brands are. That said, I think some brands showed creativity. Amazon emulated the China live shopping model with their Beauty Hall live event, which was incredibly successful. We also saw stores pivot in response to the crisis. Boutique NYC was set to open as a physical store location in New York City in the spring of 2020. But as the pandemic hit, the founders were able to pivot and create a virtual environment with the same interactive feel as the in-store experience. I also think that this pandemic has really legitimized the gaming movement. We saw brands like Tatcha and Gillette team up with Animal Crossing and Mac Cosmetics team up with The Sims to help users express themselves through their digital avatars in lieu of physical experiences. And one last lesson is that I think digital acceleration isn't just about web presence. It's also about how digital systems can enable consumers to enjoy products. One area where we're seeing huge acceleration thanks to the pandemic is delivery. Sephora has partnered with the Instacart app, Mac Cosmetics partnered with Postmates, and Cody has partnered with GoPuff. All examples of how beauty brands are utilizing technology to get products to the consumer faster and more seamlessly. What about work from home? Nicole, what is happening in Asia? Right, so in um, a lot of countries in Asia, I mean, okay, so Singapore um, is relatively back to normal. I mean, you know, uh, apart from nightclubs and uh, karaoke, and even the latter's coming back soon, pretty much um, things feel normal. You know, shops are open, people are going to bars and restaurants. In fact, they've never been busier. Um, and obviously no one can leave the country and really hardly anyone can come in and, you know, unless they spend two weeks in a hotel room in quarantine. So effectively, uh, people are spending a fortune on staycations and so on. Um, in terms of their day-to-day -day life, um, there is, in a lot of offices, it's um, people have returned to the office two to three days a week, or they're doing the 50-50 split or, you know, an A-B split, uh, split teams. So, you know, meetings are back on. Um, I now meet clients and prospects, you know, in an office. And so in, in Singapore, it kind of just feels like it was, but, you know, rather than everything being office-based, it's just a bit more, you know, relaxation about that. And particularly for people in Singapore, um, you know, the lack of travel has actually been a benefit. You know, it's it's a tiny country, but there is a lot of regional head offices here. And so most people were permanently on a plane, um, you know, to Indonesia, to the, you know, the big markets that count, to China and so on. And everyone has become home-based. 
and uh, and consequently people have just realized that they're getting more done so from a business perspective you know there is an embrace of um you know working from home more not necessarily every day but um there's definitely i mean and for asia that's a huge step i mean you know working from home just wasn't a thing before um you know particularly in places like japan people were you know trying to be encouraged to not work you know 16 hour days and so on and so forth so culturally there has been some change you know due to the pandemic and this will probably continue and how this will impact how people dress for the office how they you know use skincare has also been impacted too so there's you know there's uh, repercussions across the whole um you know aspects of everything and mallory businesses in the us how are they responding to the digital revolution so i think that in terms of the average uh, brand and consumer um, and employee relationship to the office space. Uh, you know, I read every week various op-eds about whether the work from home trend in the U.S. is going or whether it's going to stay. I think that is, you know, one thing about where the U.S. is with the coronavirus pandemic now, as opposed to, you know, different countries, is that we're still in the thick of it in terms of we're heading into another lockdown. And of course, this is now out of necessity in terms of working remotely. The U.S. is also, uh, you know, a vastly larger country. And therefore, you know, the, the idea of not having to commute two hours, three hours into an office is inherently appealing. Uh, that said, I think digital experiences like mobile tactics and new platforms are helping to connect the consumer to brands where they wouldn't be able to try out products in a physical store or, you know, test test new shades. Sally Hansen's Snapchat uh, nail polish try-on lens was a unique feature that we saw. Also, the TikTok revolution is helping to bring fun tutorials and interactive brand presence to consumers through the simplicity of uh, 10 second videos. And Amidit, work from home in Europe, will it continue? I, I, to be really honest, I don't know. But um, here in Europe, uh, most people have been working from home uh, since March. Um, and it was very interesting because when we had the first lockdown and as countries in Europe were coming out of lockdown, it was start of the summer. And uh, so people ended up having vacations either at home or within their country. And uh, then when some businesses started to reopen their offices in September, we had the second wave. So um, what we've seen is most businesses uh, across Europe, they're still operating from home. They're doing home working or they're doing a bit of uh, some days from the office, but most days from home. But where we've seen the biggest impact in the beauty industry is in terms of events, um, trade shows and conferences. We host our Sustainable Cosmetics Summit and we had to host it online this year. And I think the beauty industry it relies a lot on networking in terms of meeting suppliers, meeting customers, meeting distributors. And the experience is just not the same online. Uh, I've been to some online events for the beauty industry and uh, the networking is not there and you can't have that same level of interaction. So um, even though you know the industry has tried to go digital, um, I personally don't think it's gonna be the same. Uh, I don't think it's the same. And going forward, uh, I think there will be more digital events, but I think the industry is really hungry to go back to those physical events, especially trade shows like Cosmoprof, like In Cosmetics, 
uh, Luxpack, etc., where the industry gets together under one roof and you make your connections and you re-meet your old contacts. So I think that's where the business-to-business sector has really been affected this year. And talking about getting together, the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer highlighted the need for institutional change. Mallory, what have been the key learnings for the cosmetics industry? Well, of course, this moment has been, you know, a bedrock moment for the beauty industry in particular. And I could list a hundred lessons learned from the Black Lives Matter protests, but for brevity's sake, I'll just list a few. I think the first one, which was further solidified by the recent U.S. elections, is that brands can no longer stay silent on sociopolitical issues. Mm. In the past, brands have positioned themselves as politely apolitical in order to not alienate potential consumers. Now they risk alienating them if they don't take a stand for their beliefs. Consumers, especially Gen Z consumers, are looking to support brands that hold similar ethics and ideals and are especially wary of hypocrisy and hollow promises. Two other relevant lessons, I believe, are that brands need to be willing to reevaluate the brand framework in terms of harmful internal practices and company management. We have so many consumer, you know, uh, you know, watchdog accounts on Instagram like Estee Laundry, Pull Up or Shut Up, Out of the Gloss, which is an account helmed by ex-Glossier employees who claim they face discrimination. These brands are calling out, you know, the internal HR practices that they find problematic, and they really need to be treated with respect, and brands should really pay attention to this because they have immense impact on how consumers buy. And the final, perhaps most important point, is that there's so much work to be done at this moment, and it's really the beginning. Consumers are already taking notice that brands are slacking on their efforts and promises, but unlike previous moments in history, social media has provided the organizational tools and presence to ensure that brands will continue to be held accountable. One great example is 25BWB, which is a collective of black beauty executives who are calling out beauty brands that have slacked in their activism and who haven't made good on their promises for greater, greater representation and equality. And Amajit, in Europe, accountability, what is the cosmetics industry's key learnings? Well, uh, looking at it from a green lens, uh, the Black Lives Matter has showed how important the social aspect of sustainability is. And, and it's not just about ethnic minorities, it's about gender bias, age bias, but also people with disabilities. Uh, and the question there is, I think the way the beauty industry is looking at this is, how can we how can the industry create a more inclusive society so it's going so the beauty products or say the whole industry is not going to be for certain segments of the population but it's going to be for all segments of the population and that how we can make it more inclusive and i think there's been some interesting developments this year and uh, you can you can argue it's indirectly because of black lives matter but an example i want to pick is in uh, from india uh, a lot of products were sold as skin whitening creams because um, people with fairer skin or whiter skin were considered to be more prettier or more attractive. And we've seen brands like Unilever ax their brands or rename their brands no longer as skin whitening creams because they want to move away from that premise that, you know, if you're dark, you're not as attractive. Um, and if you're fairer, that you're more beautiful. So we've seen that development during the summer. And we've also seen companies like Estee Lauder, they're making announcements that they want to have their boards more diverse, they want to have ethnic minorities on their board in terms of management, but also 
more females on their board. So it's been a very interesting year. And looking at it again from sustainability, I think what we're going to see is more and more brands which have been focusing on climate change, packaging, uh, water footprint, etc. They're now going to take the social aspects of sustainability a lot more seriously. So they're going to look at social inclusion and also the way that they're going to market their products so that they're not just for certain segments of the population, but for everyone. And Nicole, in Asia, is rebranding packaging the way forward? Is that the key learnings from the Black Lives Matter for the Asian industry? I think what happened in this part of the world um, when Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter started to come to the forefront in the news um, is that, it re you know, it placed the issue of racism um, more into the minds of, you know, ordinary consumers in this part of the world. And the reality is it's a very uh, nuanced and very paradoxical um, discussion over here because, you know, you have brands like Fair and Lovely, you know, on the shelves, which have been renamed, but were there front and center. And these are, you know, they were still um, in demand and, you know, bestsellers in their category for consumers who believe that they are inferior because of their skin color. So it really ignited a debate um, among, you know, certain consumers across the region. I mean, you know, to put this into context, in the Philippines, it's home to one of the highest rates of skin bleaching in the world. Um, and that's obviously driven by the colonial heritage that saw, you know, hundreds of years of rule from the Spanish and from America. Um, and, you know, you go into the supermarkets, the drugstores there, and it's shelf after shelf after shelf of bleaching products. And they go from everything from face to underarm to intimate care. I mean, you know, they are being sold to the consumers because, you know, these consumers demand products that they believe will make them, they believe, prettier. And so what this has done is, you know, has uh, ignited this debate again around lightening products, around brightening products. And, um, and now it's actually spurred a new generation of Filipino products to start celebrating their different skin tones. And, um, and so for that has been a real positive um, effect of this. So it's rather than just the multinationals which are renaming their, their lightening products, which are still the same product and formulation with a new name, but we're now seeing you know, homegrown Asian products responding to this positively and creating products that celebrate the diversity of skin tones in this region. And they are so diverse. I mean, you know, Asia is a is a construct anyway. It's it's such a large place with so many different cultures, so many different religions, so many different people with different ethnicities and different skin tones. And what you know, skin tones in Japan through to China, through to Korea are so different, let alone as you head south and east in this part of the world. So what we're uh, you know, so what we're really trying to see is um, and, and celebrate is, you know, these homegrown brands now addressing what has been inherently uh, you know a major problem in this part of the world and especially as you can imagine with the large populations out here you know how big these you know products and bestsellers are for the manufacturers so you know hopefully this um, you know BLM has spurred this change and we hope that it will you know continue and you know and we're kind of tracking a lot of the brands which are um, pioneering in this area. And the industry has ended the year 
with new and in some cases more commitments to its concept of a global circular economy. Amajit, what best practice should the industry be taking into 2021 and beyond? I think 2020 has been um, a year in which beauty brands have started to look at a lot more seriously at the circular economy. This was something that has been talked about for many years before, but uh, not many companies understood what it meant and they didn't really want to invest in it. And um, what we've seen this year is we've seen quite a few really good developments. Um, the first thing is um, there's been a lot of opposition to single-use packaging. Um, of consumer awareness of plastic pollution uh, is very, very high. And as a result of that, more and more brands are now looking at how they can move away from single-use packaging. So there's more and more investment in terms of sustainable materials like bamboo, like wood, uh, or moving away from plastics altogether. For example, Garnier, they launched the shampoo bar just a few weeks ago. Uh, we're also seeing more and more companies um, adopt certification schemes like the cradle to cradle design approach. And those products are designed for a circular economy so that the packaging gets repurposed, reused, uh, as well as the nutrients are biodegradable. For example, shampoo, the ingredients after you use the shampoo, anything that gets uh, rinsed off is biodegraded. Uh, the other two developments that have been notable this year was one upcycled ingredients, how that's become more and more mainstream. We've seen brands like Dr. Craft, we've seen brands uh, like Loli Beauty in the USA, we've seen Hero Right in Taiwan, how they've built their businesses based on uh, upcycled ingredients. And more and more ingredients are being launched, which involve um, waste from food or from bark or for tree, etc. And the second big development is the Loop shopping platform introduced by TerraCycle, initially launched in USA. It's been launched now in France and the UK. And the purpose of this shopping platform is to move away from single-use plastics altogether. So um, uh, this has been introduced by quite a few personal care brands in the UK and in Europe, and they plan to take it across more and more European countries. So I think it's been an interesting year for the circular economy, and we hope to see more such developments next year. And Nicole in Asia. So building on um, Amajit's point about uh, waterless products, um, you know, a few years ago, there was a slight trend for waterless products in the region. And at that time, it was driven by consumers who were looking for products which they believed, and it wasn't anything to do with sustainability. Um, it was down to the consumers searching for, um, you know, creams and, and shampoos, which they believe had more actives in them um, and hadn't been diluted with all this water. So initially, it was about trying to find a really good, um, you know, a, a product with efficacy and delivered value. And then that kind of died down a bit. But, you know, the pandemic has... Um, reappraised how consumers again look at their products this year you know people are searching for um, more botanicals they're searching for products which are you know which they believe are safer for the skin and consequently you know waterless has started to make a comeback and then as it's made a comeback in the region and you know there's a couple of brands um, really driving that particularly from australia 
it's now turned attention back to the real message around this, that it is, you know, more sustainable. And I think generally speaking, and we had a chat about, you know, sustainability a while ago, and, um, you know, and unfortunately in this part of the world, it's just not the driving motive um, or the motivation for a lot of consumers here when they purchase. So when they're looking at something like natural, you know, they're looking at natural and then sustainability or circular comes well after that. Um, but it is slowly moving in that direction because as people realize, you know, as they're ordering all their products online and, you know, especially with the recent shopping festivals and the, and the move to digital, there is a sense that as every single product arrives in, you know, in, in endless bubble wrap and paper and so on, that, you know, people are more conscious of that actually. So there is a slight shift and, you know, brands that do talk about their sustainability it's becoming more, more relevant around um, in the region. And particularly, we think the, you know, the headline kind of star in the region is Australia. You know, they are looking at, you know, ingredients and packaging that is made from, you know, things like bamboo and so on. And it's just, it's, it's, it's never, you know, the driver, but it will arrive. And once it arrives in the region, you know, once there is a consumer uptake, then it will take off, you know, in a really big way. And Mallory... What are the drivers in the U.S.? Well, while there's no denying that the circular economy took a major hit as a result of the coronavirus pandemic due to the sanitary appeal and convenience of single-use products, Americans are still very much concerned about the environment, which is encouraging. A recent study showed that 85% of Americans report that they've been thinking about sustainability the same amount or more during the COVID-19 pandemic. The study also showed that uh, more than half of Americans want the government and brands to prioritize sustainability, even while uh, focusing on recovery. And so I think we're seeing a lot uh, in the US about how the circular economy can make supply chains more resilient to the massive impact of disruptive global events. Brands and consumers are alike are beginning to see the value in this. And coinciding with this realization is this invigorated consumer shift towards becoming more self-sufficient. We've seen DIY hobbies like baking, gardening, foraging, crafting really boom during the pandemic, not just because of boredom, but because consumers are looking to not only connect with nature, but relearn these essential skills. They are also looking more towards their local you know, communities, farmers markets, local crop share programs, you know, to get in touch with how they can support and be supported by their local communities. So I think that's really gonna fuel this movement. Um, and that the idea that an economic recovery and that an environmental recovery are not mutually exclusive. And with that, I would like to thank Amajit, Nicole and Mallory for taking part and for my audience for listening. <laughs>